deepen your faith, and learn about the rich heritage of the Catholic Church. At Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology, nourish your heart, mind, and soul through a master's degree, graduate certificate, or by simply taking a graduate course. Or you're welcome to sign up for their Lenten Reflection Series to receive emails every day with meditations from the seminary community about their recent visit to the Holy Land. Learn more at www.shu.edu jesuitical. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashlyn Kinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I feel compelled to call you out here because it's this is like when it's a Friday in Lent, and you've never experienced this because you don't eat meat uh-huh. ever, but you know, you're in the middle of like a nice plate of bacon and eggs and then someone goes to remind you oh Mm -hmm. hey Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to eat meat and it's like well too late i forgot i can't be held accountable for something i didn't intend to do i don't know what you're talking maybe other people don't think that way however ashley mckinless is sitting across from me with a gin and tonic right now because she walked right into the studio and poured herself a drink and then i reminded her that it is still Lent and we are still not supposed to be drinking on this podcast. And I reminded you that it is International Women's Day and I will have a gin and soda if I want to. All right, I I feel, all right. So one of us is having a drink to celebrate. I thought I was just going to to celebrate International Women's Day. I was just- By letting me do all the work. Yeah, I was just going to take this this show off and let you- but yeah. you have it. Like the rest of the 364 days. Yes, year. exactly. Yeah. But but extra this year. Anyway, uh, we have a great show coming yeah, up. Yeah, we do. It's nope. good to have you back. Uh, we'll get a little taste of your time in the Holy Land oh, later yeah. in the oh, show. Yeah. Uh, but before that, who are we talking to this week? So this week we're talking to J.J. Wright and Tristan Cooley. J.J. is the director of the University of Notre Dame Folk Choir. And Tristan serves as the creative director and the librettist for The Passion by the Notre Dame Folk Choir. Yes, and The Passion is an originally composed musical ritualization of Christ's Passion, something you have all heard many times in the week leading up to Easter. So it goes through the events of Palm Sunday, um, the Last Supper, the betrayal of Jesus in the garden, and of course the crucifixion, but by this amazing folk choir from Notre Dame. So it's students singing. The composers are are very well-trained professional musicians, um, and they've produced something really incredible. It's, it's an album that you can stream on Spotify, but it's also becoming a musical production, and they're going on tour. Yeah, so we're going to see it next week when they're here in New York, but we had a chance to chat with JJ and Tristan this week ahead of their their visit to the Big Apple. And man, we're going to be playing uh, music from the passion throughout the transition moments in this podcast. So you'll get a you'll get a sense of what it's like. But we, you know, had a really great discussion about um their their goals behind the project, what they learned and talking to students about their issues with um, the church and modern society and how the passion fits into all of that. Um, it's and so it's a real treat to be able to spend some time with them. So stick around for that conversation. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. 
What's our first story this week, Ashley? Do you want to take this one? Sure. Okay. I'll lead. Great. <laughs> it is International Women's Day. So we thought that we would take this day to look back at how Pope Francis has changed the place of women at the Vatican over the past 10 years. Um, and, and there's been a lot of change. Uh, when Pope Francis started, there were 846 uh, females employed at the Vatican. And today that number is up to 1,165. And on top of that, you know, total number, there's a lot of women in leadership positions um, and reaching real new heights at the Vatican. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting because, I mean, there's people that work at the Vatican, the city state, but also when you when you focus in at, at sort of the Roman Curia, that number um, gets really interesting. Um, right now, five women hold the rank of undersecretary and one, the rank of secretary at the Holy See. Um, and that single secretary is an Italian religious, Alessandra Smirilli, who Pope Francis made secretary of the dicastery for promoting integral human development. So that's just a department um, in 2021, which is the highest rank ever held by a woman at the Holy See. Right. But so secretary is not generally the top spot in any given dicastery or office department at the Vatican. Um, And so far, no female serves in that number one spot. Um, But that could change and it could change pretty soon. Last year, Pope Francis issued his long awaited reform of the Vatican bureaucracy known as the Roman Curia. And in doing so, he opened up this position of prefect to lay people for certain dicasteries where that makes sense. So the dicastery for um, families. Uh, So and even said that he would consider making a woman a prefect of such a dicastery within two years. So Historically, I mean, this is pretty new. There weren't any women appointed to leadership in the Curia until Paul VI. And so this is in the 60s. He appoints an Australian woman, Rosemary Goldie. And it was that. And then a very long break until 2004, John Paul II appointed the next undersecretary. So um, under Francis, this is kind of multiplied quite a bit, even though it seems like a small number. I think you know, it's really easy to get bogged down in in the many issues that the Catholic Church has with um, upholding the dignity of women uh, within the church and around the world. Um, But, you know, you mentioned the changes that Pope Francis is enacting and also the synod. These are conversations that we're continuing to have. Right. So with all the progress that has been made, the the consultations that have happened over the past year as part of the synod on synodality make clear that really in every part of the global church, people are still hungry for recognizing the gifts that women already bring to the church every single day in parish life and their families, um, but also looking for those places where they can be elevated to places of real authority within the church. Yeah. So if you feel frustration with that, you are certainly not alone. And the church is actively asking us to talk about that and look for solutions right now. What's our next story, Zach? Jesuits in space. (laughs) So big news. uh, We've got Three Jesuits and a 16th century pope who gave us the Gregorian calendar who have had asteroids named in their honor. Yeah, so th- these are a mouthful, but I'll try to say the name. Oh, at least one of those Jesuits. It's asteroid 562971 Johann Hagen. It's named for the Austrian Jesuit father, Johann Hagen, who in 1906 became the first Jesuit director of the new Vatican Observatory. Yeah. And this is big. Uh, Jesuits have an affinity for this. Right now, there are 32 asteroids and over 30 objects on the moon that are named after Jesuits. So the more you know. Um, And another asteroid, number 560974, Ugo Boncampagni, honors Ugo Boncampagni, who was elected Pope Gregory the 13th in 1572. Um, And Pope Gregory was not a Jesuit. However, he employed a German Jesuit uh, 
Father Christopher Clavius, who helped reform the calendar, which took the name Gregorian calendar, which is still the calendar that we use today. Yeah. And Gregory is not the only pope with an asteroid named after him. Um, we have 8661 Ratzinger, which was named after Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, after this uh, asteroid was discovered in Germany. And I was looking into this too. And so the discoverer of this asteroid wanted to name it after Ratzinger because Ratzinger had allowed researchers to go into the Vatican archives and investigate kind of the Inquisition into Galileo and and bring to light some of the uh, quote unquote judicial errors that were made in sentencing Galileo. To say the least. And one thing we should make clear is that these are not just like the Catholic names for the asteroids, right? So this is uh, the International Astronomical Union that uh, comes up with these. They sort of propose names in a working group and they're voted on. And you can't I, I, the rules are very interesting. You can't purchase like the name of an asteroid. So no, not even Elon Musk could buy an asteroid to name it after himself. And you also can't have any type of like pet names or commercial names. Like literal the, pet names or like I, pet I, names? I don't <laughs> look, I'm not the in the judiciary in the International Astronomical Union. Uh, but you know, so really they're looking at what were the Jesuits and the church's contributions to astronomy and science and what are some ways that we can honor that. And so, you know, those of us who uh, live and work in the Jesuit heritage, uh, in the Jesuit mission should be pretty proud of this, I think. Definitely. And what's our last story, Ashley? So we couldn't end this episode without talking about the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis, which happens on Monday, March 13th. And we'll say we're not going to do an exhaustive look back at his his 10 years at Pope. For that, you can go over to our friends at Inside the Vatican. But we did think we would share maybe our our strongest memory of of the past decade under Pope Francis. So what's yours, Zach? So... I still remember where I was when, you know, the white smoke came out. I was in college at the time and uh, wanted to skip class in order to celebrate. Uh, Not everyone shared that enthusiasm, but I did. I skipped, I think, my Gospel of John class to kind of celebrate the Habemus Popham of it all. Uh, And I don't know that I have a specific memory of the pontificate as much as I keep thinking about the way that Pope Francis has changed the conversation in and around the Catholic Church, right? Um, You know, Professionally, I feel like we've been able to um, talk more openly about some issues facing the church that had kind of been not up for discussion in the past. Um, but even you know, with my friends and family that are are not Catholic or don't really pay attention to these things, um, the public facing image he has given the church, even in the midst of the many scandals and crises that have faced the church, I feel like generally he still has a pretty positive approval rating, which has sort of just opened the door for some pretty fruitful conversations, I would say. So that's what I am thinking about on his 10th anniversary. Uh, What, do you have a memory that you're thinking about? Well, it's really hard for me to disconnect Pope Francis being Pope from my time in America. I'm I'm approaching my 10 year anniversary here. So are you planning to resign soon or <laughs> die? In, are you going to die in office? I will die in my office. Okay, good. you will never get my office. Back. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. But um, anyway, so yeah, you've been. Yeah, no, I literally moved to America six months to the day of Pope Francis becoming Pope, September 13th, and that Monday when I started working, uh, we had the first interview Pope Francis had given to any publication um, during that first year of his papacy under embargo. I did not 
at that point know what under embargo meant. Not sure you My supervisor it had to t- <laughs> she had to take me into her office and be like, okay, so this means you can't tell anyone, anyone, like not even your mom. And I was like, okay, got it. But then I was like immediately like put to task of like doing the social media promotion and writing the press release. And I was like, oh my gosh. So that was hard to forget in terms of my professional life. But then, you know, when I actually maybe like a week later had time to sit down with that first papal interview, it was such a like education in Jesuit spirituality to me. I, I didn't go to a Jesuit school, but I had one Jesuit professor, but he was he was more strong on the intellectual side of the Jesuit charism. And so just reading that interview and seeing the freedom that Pope Francis had to just be honest about things. You know, his first line was, I am a sinner. And then he he talks about, you know, times he's made mistakes in his life. He calls himself an authoritarian when he was a Jesuit superior back in Argentina. And so it was really just amazing for me to see like, oh, so not only are we going to have this pope that's going to make my life as a media professional interesting for the next however many years, but it really gave me an insight into the spirituality that I was kind of just getting introduced to through my work here at America. Mm. No, I um, I feel similarly. Like I, some in some ways, my professional life is inseparable from Francis's pontificate. And so uh, there are a lot of things we could talk about uh, in 10 years. I was It just occurred to me, we were around for the fifth anniversary. So that means we're getting old <laughs> and this podcast is getting old. Um, but for a fantastic look back on the first 10 years of Francis's pontificate. Be sure to head to the Inside the Vatican feed where they have a great deep dive looking back on the past 10 years. And now stick around for our conversation with J.J. Wright and Tristan Cooley. Joining us from South Bend, Indiana, are J.J. Wright and Tristan Cooley. J.J. is the director of the University of Notre Dame Folk Choir, and Tristan serves as creative director and librettist for The Passion by the Notre Dame Folk Choir. Welcome to Jesuitical, J.J. and Tristan. Thanks so much for having us, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah thanks for being here. Um, so a lot of questions for you guys, but first, University of Notre Dame. Uh, is it Catholic school? Where is that? <laughs> Um, it's how it's, you guys it's been an around? imaginary place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're in South Bend, Indiana, the home of the the Fighting Irish. Um, okay. Best known for our football team, I think, but also for our Catholic identity. And uh, and now for your folk choir. Yes. Well, we <laughs> nice. hope. Yeah. Nice. I'll, I'll I'll check it out. But um, Ashley and I are really excited to dig into this. This feels appropriately Lenten to be talking to you guys. Um, you know, Ashley and I have been listening to this. It's it would be it's difficult for us to try to put into words, you know, what this, what this project is and w- what it entails. I'm wondering if you guys could give us sort of like the, the elevator pitch for, for what this is. Sure. The listening experience, I like to describe it as like an old school radio play um, because it's got like um, these main narrators. It's got Magdalene and John uh, who we know so well from the scripture who, who take us through the story and their roles are spoken Um and then we've got these kind of singer-songwriter style songs that are these moments of respite throughout the Passion. Um, and then we've got like this kind of contemporary choral instrumental music that um, 
is, is usually what's helping us kind of get through narrative moments. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, the quick pitch. Interesting. How would you describe this? I, it may, that sounds right to me. Yeah, it, that's right. That's, I think that's the most succinct way to put it. Old school radio play in that it has a bunch of different elements that work together narratively and sort of um, deliver a coherent, dramatic um, product. So yeah, that, I would say that, yeah, radio play. If people yeah, still the, listen to those or audio drama. <laughs> well, I was going to say what I, and I hope you take this as a compliment because if you knew me, it would be, it kind of reminded me of a combination of like a good Friday service and the Prince of Egypt, which is one of my favorite movies. Heck yeah. <laughs> yes. Tristan's pumping his Even fist. Mary sounded yes. a little bit like Miriam and yes, I Yes, totally. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah, I did. Wow. I did to that point. I did find this very accessible. You know, when uh, our producer first told us about this, it was like, "Oh, it's a new rendition of the Passion." I was like picturing, sort of Bach. like Bach, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And sort of like a, a contemporary update. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to talk about that on a podcast because I don't know. I don't have really any musical training. Ashley has less. <laughs> um, but it, I found like both the the inclusion of of spoken parts, sort of the different tempos. Uh, I, it was really easy for me to get into. I don't know if you felt the same way, Ashley. Oh, yeah, totally. Was that, I guess, intentional on your part to take take something like Box Passion and make it a little bit more accessible for, for a contemporary audience? Absolutely. Like, we're, our, our kind of gut instinct with the passion, well, firstly, like, so many passions have been written. Um, we're referencing Bach, but, like, more contemporary examples are, like, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar is a passion, technically. Is there is there a technical definition of passion play or oh, goodness. musical like <laughs> maybe it's like it's the part of the scripture because if it includes both yeah <laughs> both of those yeah for sure like it's the part of the scripture that talks about the end of jesus's life um and so like over time um this part of the story has been like drama dramatized in tons of different artistic ways um and then of course like every palm sunday and good friday um it's part of the liturgy um and so i think part of our impetus too with like having from these spoken roles was that like we wanted it to connect to that experience of people who have been to those services and for them to see the connection between um, that that liturgical experience and then kind of this like this new way that we interpreted it. Well, and that liturgical experience is unique because you hear multiple voices proclaiming the gospel, which is sort of that is out of the norm for the normal cycle. Right. It's the only time that happens in the year. Right. Yeah. And so with with the passion, the the two main voices we hear are um, John, the beloved disciple and Mary Magdalene. How how did you choose those two narrators? Prayer, I think. That's where I would start, JJ, is that it it wasn't there were a lot. There were 12 options, you know, Um, 13, 13. No, (laughs) (laughs) at least (laughs) and some. And and I think uh, Magdalene was the vertical plane the mystical experience of Christ, the access to um, his person that was, that is beyond reason. And that, and that actually is, that is of the body. That's, that, that's, um, she has a, a particular connection to, to Jesus. That was different from John, John who existed on the horizontal plane, John whose, John whose job was to, in, in at least in the, the initial stage of like figuring out who the narrator would be, bringing people uh, t- together, reconciling the world to the world. Magdalene's job was to reconcile herself and humanity to the divine. So there was a sort of like, that was an overarching idea. Um, both had this deep connection to Jesus, John, the beloved disciple, the one who's next to him at the table, who sort of hears his beating heart. That um, that was also another, I think, powerful impetus. Both of them had like very personal, um, an embrace with Jesus that was that, that granted them the ability to be narrators. 
let me put the question another way. People have traditionally not looked to Mary Magdalene in particular as someone who is an authoritative uh, narrator on this subject. And I wonder if you guys are conscious of that in the yeah. choice. Well, so the the other context is like in in Passions, you do have this kind of like evangelist character um, always or narrator, right? And um, so we're very much drafting off of the fact that that exists in the in the tradition, if you will. Um, and uh, we have another character called Memory, who um, is also functions in this way, but she only sings, so she's kind of mysterious. But um, to, to your question, Zach, like, yeah, um, as we kind of dig in here, like part of what we... We, we gave our elevator pitch about what the experience is like listening to the passion in a much broader sense. Like the passion as an artistic project is really a pastoral environment for faith formation. Um, because what we hoped to do, what we did first as artists, Tristan and I was kind of go through this weird creative process that artists do, you know, like you, you get into the room together and you throw stuff at the wall, like a writer's room and you see what sticks. Um, you see what resonates with you. You see what resonates with your relationship with God, how you want to grow, kind of all those things. Um, and and we kind of came to a very uh, we came we came to a shared understanding of what that meant. Um, once we started to invite the students from the folk choir in, which was um, this its own sort of life giving process in itself, um, we started to learn a ton from like what does the passion mean to them. Um, and one of the questions that was constantly asked um, when we looked at older passions as models is why don't you have uh, a female person who is narrating this? Like, why isn't that ever part of it? And we were like, man, great question. We don't know. Um, but why don't we do it? Because that would be really cool. And Magdalene, as you listen to the passion, has all these incredible insights about Jesus that um, uh, we haven't gotten to really hear in passions before. So, Yeah. Can you talk more about your role with with the students and their role in the creation of this play? You you said it was like a kind of pastoral endeavor. So what what was the give and take between you as the creators and and the students as as performers and co-creators maybe? Um yeah, we uh we were in fortunate in the fall of 2020 uh and even in the summer 2020 to get to invite students to participate in the sort of uh, sort of drafting of generative material, the 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 texts and the original musical ideas that would morph into songs and then eventually become scenes. It was simply an invitation. JJ and I decided we'd like students to be involved, to partake in this thing that he and I have been collaborating on and doing. And we, so we, we invited students and uh, the way it ended up working was I had a group of, a small group of students that I worked with. Uh, and that small group of students would week to week come in over zoom we would uh talk about we talk through a scene that we'd picked or uh we would read through scriptures together and that would lead to prompts like a basic like a creative writing workshop kind of for students who are not writers and who don't who didn't have a lot of experience with creative writing but who were just interested and wanted to explore their faith through their creativity and so these creativity workshops would then they would over over the period of weeks would produce a text would produce a students would bring in little poems that they wrote or not, or like a, a short narrative they would write. And this would often draft off of something like Ignatian spiritual exercise, um, things that were inviting students to put themselves in the scenes of the passion. And what came out of that was this great diversity of um, a response and encounter. And students would come in and discuss that with me and with each other. Oh, I had this experience or I wrote about this thing. And, and they would be amazing because we'd have all this different cool like unique um, material to then sort of put together and I would take it and say, okay, well, what are the patterns or the themes that are emerging from these six students? 
and then we would generate a, a poem or a song or something based on that. And then we, the cool thing, the, maybe the coolest thing to me was that JJ thought of like a, a way to then disseminate that information to the, the choir at large. Yeah, that's a great description. We would make these like really um, basic demos and, and just try to share them either that way or we'd get them written down in a really kind of simple way on in, in music notation and just get the choir to sing them. Um, so it was very much like an iterative process and one in which um, we were constantly asking the students to to reflect back to us what they were getting out of the process. I've got to say, uh, once at America Magazine, we designed a, a T-shirt by committee and the result was a disaster and the process was even worse. So it is amazing yeah. that through this collaborative uh, project of Google Docs and <laughs> different meetings, you created something so beautiful. That was That's, what I think, where the, the kind of core of the passion came through. Like, the one of the refrains that we always come back to is like, the passion teaches us how to be present to hard things. And so um, there's really nothing harder for artists than creating like a co-collaborative environment um, because you really have to kind of give up your own ego. You, you have to be insistent about your own ego when you're in the creation, but then you have to like bring that to the table and see how um, our, our egos can work together. Um, and so the passion really, I think, in a, in a spiritual sense, uh, like enabled that to happen in a way that may like another story might not have lent itself to. Could you guys give an example of like a piece of student contribution or feedback that sort of changed a scene or a direction in which the passion took? Yeah. In the whole piece, like you've got this refrain that comes back three times. It starts out as she washed him. Then it turns into he washed them. Then it turns into we washed him. She washed him is in reference to Mary of Bethany um, at the anointing, right? Like, and and that was another one of those moments where, like, like Magdalene, um, uh, many of the students in the choir are wondering, like, in the scripture, we have all of these incredible uh, moments where uh, women in the story are leaders, um, and 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 they were re- kind of reflecting back to us, like, well, when we look out in in the church, we don't necessarily see that reflected right now, um, and um, but how do we look at that and, and not be critical, but, um, but try to embody what it means to sort of become these characters through the story. Um, so, um, this, this anointing that, that Mary did, uh, for Jesus became like, a um, its own motor really. That's like kind of what sets the dominoes, um, falling, right? Like, so she, she washes Jesus, Jesus then takes that same gesture and washes the apostles feet. Um, and then, um, then everybody responds at the end by anointing Jesus when we say that we we washed him. Um, this is one of those moments where like you always hope when you create an artwork that you can build through lines like this. And you always like when you check out Bach or Beethoven or any of these these great composers like those that stuff is in their music. But you never really know how it happens until like you kind of go through the grind of sitting with the whole team in the room over the course of a couple of years, because it's not an, it's not a singular process. It's something that we all notice together. And it's like, oh my gosh, what if we took Bethany and we connected to the foot washing and then we connected that to the anointing. And as a result, you have this like incredible um, through line that just never would have gotten created if if we weren't in this collaborative environment. No, and that's a pretty atypical, like I would say passion through line to, to for those three markers specifically. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I had a question about sort of the, the audio as a medium or as a genre because you know, Tristan, you mentioned um, Ignatian imaginative prayer. And I feel like for me, like trying to come up with an artistic rendition of the passion is such a big 
project. Um, and there's so many ways you can do it wrong. Um, and sort of stripping away the visual part of it um, allows for a lot of freedom, I think, on the on the behalf of the the listener. And I know you guys have some visual elements um, for for the concert, but I'm wondering uh, how you saw yourself fitting into the tradition of telling this specifically as a piece of audio. I love making records. Like I've, I've made a bunch of them in my career, and um, and it's such an incredible process because. Um, there's this agreement among musicians that the, the studio is kind of the sacred space. Um, when you go into the studio, kind of all bets are off. Like you leave your assumptions at the door and your, your agreement is that I'm coming in with an open heart and an open mind to create something new and to create something beautiful. Um, when you kind of translate that and we're able to translate that into a student experience, um, it, it invites you into a process that like uh, is very unique among like uh, an academic pursuit or or a sports um, activity or those types of things. The second piece, I think, is just, uh, you know, like listening to music um, does something different than observing something visually or um, or reading or, or uh, other media whereby um, I think that music can like, in a sense, like kind of go past the intellect and it can go straight into your heart. Maybe it's as a result of the process through which it gets created. It's It has that capacity, but... Um, but I'm really drawn to that idea that like by arranging sounds in a certain way, you can you can communicate something that language never could. You could communicate something that um, something you could see never could um, because of the way that it feels. It's a bodily experience. Sound waves are physical, right? So, Amen, dude. I, I, I don't have much to add to that other than I would say why audio is a particularly valuable medium or mechanism to access the, um, the, the kind of encounter, the kind of Eucharistic encounter that we're talking about here. And I, Martin Luther says this very beautiful thing with respect to the passion. He says, um, he says, you cannot find it, it meaning the way of the cross. You cannot find the cross in yourself. Jesus says to us, you must let me lead you as though you were a blind man. Wherefore, it is not you, no man, no living creature, but I myself who instruct you. So there's something about that too. When 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 my sole job is to listen, when my soul, what what, what Jesus is asking me to do is listen to him and and follow him with his voice, it distills very quickly what like what what I do with my will, what I what I what I'm able to do with my intellect, and and who I am becomes basically be, who I am becomes a follower of Jesus really quickly. When I can't get distracted by anything else, and I think there's something about sound that JJ is getting into, that's that that does do that very specifically. It's Jesus' voice. I want to hear His words. I want to hear His love for me, and that that's what draws me forward. I think ultimately, my experience of listening. So you're telling the story of the passion. It's you know really at, at the center of our faith as as Christians, and I can't imagine you can spend whatever two or three years with these words and these stories and these characters without it affecting your own faith or the faith of the students. So I'm wondering, um, either either in your own uh, faith life, how how this work has impacted you, or or what you've seen in your students. Yeah, our dear University of Notre Dame has this. Uh, a thing called the Notre Dame Forum. And um, uh, the year that we were getting started on the passion, the topic of the forum was the clergy sexual abuse crisis. And the purpose of the Notre Dame Forum is to bring to light something that um, uh, that we need to focus on as a, as a culture. Um, so um, at this, I think this is 2018. Um, and around that time, we had all kinds of uh, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. We had all kinds of uh, a kind of a fresh batch in the news um, of 
reported cases and the ways in which um, uh, it had been covered up and, you know, all the things that we kind of know about the clergy sexual abuse crisis. And in my own kind of life of faith, um, I really felt like it was important for me to contend with this idea because I couldn't figure out how the clergy sexual abuse crisis could belong in the church. And then as a result, how could I belong in a church where that belongs or where, where it's been? Um, and part of our, our research, Tristan and I, um, along the way was to talk to survivors of, of clergy sexual abuse and to talk to um, psychiatrists and, and psychologists who, who work um, with abuse and to talk to clergy members um, who've been involved in this, to talk to um, lay employees of, of dioceses who are the first calls when, when a case gets reported and um, to really try to understand better what happened with this and how when something like this has happened, how can we still respond um, in in faith? Um, and the passion, be- like I said, the, the passion became this place where um, it taught me how to be present to something that is awful. Um, and it's not in any way meant to um, uh, wash over what happened or justify what happened or, um, or brush it away, but to help us understand um, where it fits, if you will, and then how can we respond um, coming out of that. Uh, so that that changed me dramatically, I think, because um, I went from, you know, not really seeing how uh, I could be a part of something like that to to being here with you all, like being able to talk about it and being able to share this story because of how um, impactful I think that the passion can be when we allow it to sort of infiltrate um, some of the things that we don't, some of the places where we don't think it belongs. Tristan? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, similar to JJ, my faith has changed. When I experience contradictions in my life now, when I come across paradox, when I when I reach impasse, um, and especially when that impasse or that contradiction or that paradox is related to the tradition or my experience of, fa- of the faith, the gift of the passion to me has, has been able to realize that that's where exactly where Jesus is. And that's exactly where he descends to. Um, that the road to Calvary is one contradiction and one paradox and uh, one impasse after one obstacle after another. And so, actually, when when I encounter those things in my own life, that they're that they're pat they're passion infused, and so it helps my faith, it helps my hope, helps my charity to know that this thing I've encountered now has has is 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 uh, the track has been laid already. Um, all the time in my life, like. I'm I'm seeing passion now, like uh, I'm seeing the passion come out in all these different corners. So that's the, that's the, how it's changed my faith is it's just more present to me all the time. And how did that, how grappling with these contradictions and scandals like the sex abuse scandal make its way into the passion itself? Is is there a specific song or character that kind of embodies that that challenge? There's a couple of places where it's kind of on the nose. The one scene is when we all sing, uh, he washed them. Ma- Magdalene is, is narrating this scene. Um, it's kind of like a call and response type thing. And the choir saying he washed them and, and Magdalene saying. Um, and this is Jesus washed the. Yeah, apostles. Jesus washing the, the apostles feet. And, uh, and, and she's saying for those uh, who ripped and tore, who shut the door. Um, the greatest ascent- seeds, the least yeah. of these. The- he washed them all. Yeah, in constant sin, there's the, and and they're they're sort of litanized that they're all next to each other in this list that they're all equal and that exactly that there's no um nobody doesn't get right Judas gets his feet his feet washed exactly. right and it makes no sense um, right. that Judas gets his feet washed but 
the other place where it, it's it really comes out is that there's kind of like the climax of the piece in the crucifixion scene when um, uh, Jesus is right about to die, and there's just this kind of uh, absolutely um, overwhelming yelling of the word Father, and um, and in my mind, you know, it, it kind of comes from this abstract creative place, but I'm connecting the idea of of being able to call out to God the Father, to be able to call out to to Father uh, as in uh, clergy, and and to be able to um, wonder why together um, this has happened. Why have you and, forsaken me? Yeah, and and how you know the the response, of course, to this um, at the end of the piece, you end up. Uh, at this place where we we sing, now I'm drawn back to the table again. My response to the passion, our response to the passion, as as a liturgical choir and as a liturgical musician and a, and a liturgical writer, is to go back to the table. That's all we can do, and it and it's a position of hope to be able to um, to rejoin in communion, not just to to be able to receive, but to to be in communion with each other as a um, manifestation of the body of Christ. We would be doing uh, our listeners a disservice if we didn't play a little bit of this project for them right now. Uh, so I'm hoping we can transition a little bit to maybe focusing on on one one piece of music and, and chatting about that for a little bit. So um, we're going to take a quick pause and play a little bit of Mary's song and then have a little chat about it. admit I was listening to this song earlier today in my office and I didn't think I needed to close my door but I found myself weeping and was mm. like oh god I hope no one comes in this is um from Virgin Mary not Mary Magdalene singing to Jesus so can you you guys describe where this where the idea for this song came from and um I don't know what it brings out from you yes to start uh this is actually also a good example of contradiction this be this very beautiful tender song of a mother's love for her child happening in the midst of 
the crucifixion and um, sort of sort of right at the heart of this music that is kind of at moments wall to wall sound and and really kind of overwhelming that it washes and you feel it in your body in a way that's often very uncomfortable. This song happens and it's this moment of tenderness uh, amongst great pain and suffering. Part of where it came from was, I think, for a desire for... <laughs> Crucifixion is a 17-minute scene in this piece. So it's a lot of music and it's a lot of... Um, it's a lot of difficult material to sit with for that long. So, so part of it was practical. We wanted to have a moment of reprieve in the midst of it. I think it took us both a while to like accept that it could fit there. We thought this is a crucifixion, and and this is, and we need to, and we need to sit with the cross. This isn't the right time for this kind of music. And we were actually both like flat wrong. Um, we we don't just need it. It's the reminder that the cross is about love. It's about eternal love, and. And that my experience of the at the foot of the cross is my is an experience of Christ's Christ's love for me, um, and so who who better than to to sing about that to us than his mother? And we had two yeah two wonderful collaborators on this song a student named Wen Lei and uh, another composer named Frankie Rousseau who really were the kind of engines behind the original idea for this. But um, Tristan said it well, and I think one of the the beautiful things about um, this song, um, if if we think back to the process that we used to create this stuff, was that like in in Tristan's group, um, he challenged his students to to talk to their mothers about what it might be like to um, to feel loss, and and I know that he talked to his own mother about that extensively. Um, but the idea that um, the passion also can become another way for us to connect with our with our family. Um, was it was a beautiful idea that um, that was the genesis for this song. And then not only was it um, connective for the students and their families, but that got to be brought into our our community of the folk choir. And then as a result, we get to be able to share that forward. So it's it's a very kind of organic um, way that that thing got created. I feel like because the crucifix is so ubiquitous in Catholic spaces that we can become almost desensitized to it. A little bit, and I feel like these these moments with Mary or this this idea of bringing in like a mother and son's bond into things, almost like I mean, this is like what the Pieta did, right? When, mm. when Michelangelo made it, it reminded people of sort of the the horror of it and how you know deeply tragic it could be. And so I I was laughing, Tristan, when you called this a reprieve because I, I guess I understand that musically, but this sort of like was the gut punch as I'm yeah. listening to it. It really is. And I think you're, we've seen that experience reflected when we've gotten to perform it, where it's, this is kind of the real moment where, where everything hits home. And I think the great irony of that, and one of the things that Tristan and I constantly reflect on was what he said, we, we were wrong about whether or not this belonged. Um, and we will carry that in, in a wonderful way. We get to carry that to know that like um, the way in which um, we opened the door and, and allowed people to um, to collaborate and and then we collaborate with them was actually just a greater good than anything we ever could have created ourselves. Um, and what a great kind of uh, emblem or, or sign of what the passion is about. As a woman, I've always found Mary to be a, a way for me to really to really see the the passion and, and feel it even more so. And I'm, I'm looking at these lyrics now and I guess because of our earlier conversation and how how the uh, clergy sex abuse crisis has you know shaped your own approach to the passion, um, I can't help but like now read this through the like 
or in the hear it in the voice of a mother whose like child has been abused by someone in the church and how this is if only the church had been able to hear hear these voices sooner how how different things would be that's beautiful and that i think you know some of the other ways in which um these the the idea of being able to be present to hard things manifested like we we were working hard on this in may of 2020 when when george floyd was murdered and uh that became a massive um uh engine for conversation and reflection and self-assessment and just like it was kind of on a national level but um students are very concerned about uh environmental justice and care for our common home um as well as like we talked about just the the role of women in the church and and how um and how that can be well represented in the things that we are creating. So there's, we hope that um, through this kind of artistic experience, um, a listener or a viewer is able to kind of read themselves into it because that is what the passion actually allows us to do just as a paradigm. You know, um, we're recording this a couple days after I got back from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And so a lot of these songs are, you know, were very evocative for me in, in terms of what they brought up and the places I was walking. Um, you guys recorded the the studio album version of this um, in in the Holy Land, right? In Jerusalem, right? After sort of a pilgrimage there. Why was that important uh, for you guys to do? Um, well, for all these reasons that we'd been walking together uh, through, through the passion narrative over and over for a year and a half with students. And, um, and we, we, we imagined ourselves into these scenes week after week we'd seen ourselves on the palm sunday road and uh i think and 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 then when we finally staged it and students got to actually play these parts and then move through the we, we did it originally in parishes but but moving through and and like living into the the character of madeline and the character of john with their bodies it became clear that like the obvious sort of next place to go as as a extension or the sort of culmination of that kind of formation was 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 pilgrimage because we were transcending ourselves we were using our memories we were like we were we were drawing on all of the things that one um does when one goes on pilgrimage we just we but we hadn't left notre dame yet and and we came out of the pandemic i think it felt like to me like a huge um sort of sigh of relief to to be able to travel that way and, and travel where to like to the sea of galilee and to actually swim in that water uh after we the day the same day that we sang the peter song you know um, it's, it's hard to describe actually. Well, it is, it is hard to describe, but I think we talked earlier about how the way, the way we find music is by the way it feels. And so it feels like something to, to swim in the sea of Galilee. It feels like something to put your hand on the anointing stone in the, in the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And when you feel that, and when you feel it in community, um, you bring that into the studio with you. And then that gets translated into the way that the performance goes. Um, so um, we know that kind of instinctually as musicians, but um, but it's really it's really important. Um, it would it became really important for us also just from like kind of a faith formation perspective to share this type of mountaintop experience with the students. Like this is not what life is like to go to the Holy Land uh, and to record a passion. Yeah, but these it's types the climb of Mount Tabor where the transfiguration yeah. happened, you know, and then like later that day, yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen in life. But man, like when you when you get to uh, what, like we said, one of our main characters is memory. When you get to have the memory of this experience, like it, it like buoys you for a long time. And it's always something that 
as long as the memory doesn't turn into a fossil, like it, it can always be something that can inspire you and draw you um, into the new. Um, so that that's part of what kind of the experience offered to us, I think, in a in a bigger sense as well. That's great. And now you're sharing that experience with us through the passion. So thank you for that. Um, before we let you go, we do have one last question for both of you that we ask all of our guests. And that is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Mine unquestionably would be J.S. Bach. Uh, he's Lutheran and I actually in the Lutheran church, Bach is a saint, so he's already canonized. But um, But Bach has taught me more about faith and about what it means to be Catholic and have relationship with God than any other person. And he did it all through uh, creating music. So I'm, I'm, so JJ went with the musician. I'll try to go with the poet. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think for me, it would be a, well, it would be, it would be Wallace Stevens. Um, and that's it's a kind of a weird answer, but, I, but his poetry opened up for me this, the, that the experience of, everyday things, things in themselves, which you would say, is where we access uh, God, anything divine. And it's right here in front of us. It's right here in my hand. I can touch it. And uh, and when I read his poetry, it, it helps me remember that like my, my relationships, my um, my experience of the world is, is exactly where Jesus comes to meet me. So maybe Wallace. Mm. Those are both very good and very on-brand answers for, <laughs> for the two of you. So we live to very serve. much appreciate <laughs> Yes. That. Um, so where can people, uh, encounter this work, um, either in person or streaming? Yeah. So if you go to folkchoir.com, it's F-O-L-K, choir, C-H-O-I-R.com. It's kind of like this, um, grab bag of information. You can buy the physical album, which is a beautiful, uh, double CD with a 24 page booklet. Um, you can stream it on Spotify or on Apple music or on any streaming service. Um, you can come see the show. Um, if you live in Naples, Florida, Fort Lauderdale, New York City, um, Washington, D.C., or Pittsburgh. Um, or you can watch this um, beautiful lyric video that um, one of our collaborators has made with our students where um, you get to see the words come across the screen with all of these evocative um, images of the the things you're hearing about. So folkchoir.com. Uh, yeah, it's on YouTube as well, yeah. Awesome. Uh, JJ and Tristan, thank you so much for coming on the pod. And, and congratulations, you guys really, it, it's stellar. I hope you guys Thank feel, you so much. Feel good about well, it's our pleasure. Thank you guys for having us. Thanks, guys.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. What do we have this week, Ashley? So this week, our friend Kirsten Powers, she's been on the podcast a couple times. uh, And last time in 2021, we talked about her book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. That book is now out on paperback, and we have three of them to give away to Patreon supporters. Yeah, that's right. So it, to sweeten the deal, we'd like to give people a chance to sign up um, for our Patreon page, and we're going to reveal the winners on our Friday, March 24th episode. Um, so normal production schedule, we record on Wednesday. So that means you have until Wednesday, March 22nd, to be entered into a raffle to get one of three copies of Kirsten's new book, which is, again, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. I have plenty of those people in my life, so it is always wisdom that I need. And in the meantime, whether you're signing up for Patreon or not, you should definitely go check out that episode of the podcast. It was a fantastic conversation, um, and Kirsten is a real joy to speak with. And March Madness will soon be upon us, and Jesuitical is going to (laughs) have our own little bracketology. Yes. So there are a couple Jesuitical listeners who have taken up the mantle to, you know, bring some excitement into our lives this March. Um, I'm going to be watching basketball, but I'm also going to be watching this bracket, um, which is courtesy of our friends uh, Chris Kinkor and Jeff Johnson. Uh, Chris has been tracking... uh, who people who guests canonize on the show so how many times dorothy day has been canonized the show chris knows the answer to that he's got it in a spreadsheet maybe you've seen it on our facebook page uh but chris and jeff have organized a saint a jesuitical saint uh championship bracket it's like the sweet 16 but the saint 16 the saint 16 exactly and so what's going to be happening is uh starting on monday uh chris and jeff are going to be posting daily head-to-head matchups so if you for example want to vote against dorothy day and sister helen prejean um, for who is the winner of the jesuitical march madness saint 16 bracket uh you can do that if that idea sounds blasphemous to you you're probably (laughs) listening to the wrong show um 
But it's going to be a ton of fun, and we'll be doing it every day on our Facebook page uh, starting on Monday. So be sure to head there and check it out. That is facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. And a huge thank you to Chris and Jeff for organizing this for the community. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And Zach, you found God in an unexpected corner of Jerusalem. That's right. So we're going to do something a little different for this week's uh, segment. Uh, I just came back from my pilgrimage to the Holy Land with America Media, and I could talk about any number of graces that uh, I was able, I received on this pilgrimage. However, I want to tell you a little bit about my journey to get a tattoo. So here's that story. Jerusalem, ancient city of David, modern metropolis, sacred space to three Abrahamic faiths. Today, it's a bustling city, except on the Sabbath. Yet it can feel like you're stepping back in time once you pass through the walls to the old city, where some of the most famous holy sites in the world are located. The Western Wall, the Dome of the Rock, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is my second time in the Holy Land, and I have a very specific pilgrimage spot in mind this time. It's stuck just inside Jaffa Gate in the historical Christian quarter. This year, I'm a pilgrim not looking for a church or a shrine, but a tattoo parlor. Down an alley named for St. George, Slayer of Dragons, I find what I've come for, Razouk's Tattoo. Razouk's is the oldest tattoo shop in the world, according to the family and the Guinness Book of World Records certificate hanging inside the shop. Tattoos since 1300 is plastered on the sign outside and the many t-shirts for sale. Okay, so my name is Anton, Anton Razouk. I am the 28th generation of this family. We have been tattooing for 700 years. 700 years. Um, so you're the 28th, the 28th in the gener generation. generation. So have you, are you committed? Are you going to carry on the line? Absolutely. I have a younger brother. We both are basically doing tattoos right now. Uh, he is 20, I think, and I'm 22, and we're both trying to carry on the tradition of tattooing. I don't have any tattoos. This will be my first, and I'm really nervous. But I've also been thinking about getting this tattoo for three years since my last trip to the Holy Land. And I've convinced a few of my fellow pilgrims to join me. I ask Anton what he thinks about being a place that gives out mostly religious tattoos. Because back in the United States, there are a lot of people who think those things don't exactly mix. A lot of priests even nowadays have tattoos, and a lot of pilgrims, especially, uh, let's say, your typical pilgrims, so the Middle Eastern pilgrims, right? Yeah. Egyptians, uh, Iraqis, or whatever. All the priests with them are also tattooed. Coptic priests even have Coptic tattoos on their wrists. So tattoos are not necessarily against religion. It's just now, that the Razouk family will give you whatever tattoo you want. But a lot of people pick a variation of the same thing. The Jerusalem cross. So I think I want a Jerusalem cross. Below my watch line. Yes. On the left side. So maybe. Small, that goes under your watch line? I think so, yeah. Or, or from here? I think, I think here's okay, yeah. yeah. Is this one the Jerusalem cross? Okay. This is the very original one that we... Uh, that's the original? That's yes, the that's the very one? original one, yeah. That's... Okay, I think I only want the cross. I, I don't have like... no color, no. Okay. I think uh, maybe black? I don't know. It's, it's, it's in Colored in black? Yes. This is a good size, too. Razouk's family has used wooden stamp blocks that serve as an outline to guide the tattoo artist's hand. So I'm eager to pick one that's been in use for over 300 years. 
I wait my turn while a couple of pilgrims go ahead of me. After a few minutes, I'm called in. I sit down with Nizar Razuk, the younger brother of the 28th generation. Next to me, Tom, a fellow pilgrim, is getting a pretty sizable Jerusalem cross on his ankle from Wasim Razuk, the father. You can hear a bit of their crosstalk. Evidently, chatting helps distract from some of the pain. When I sit down, I ask Nizar about the tattoo I'm about to get. Can you tell me a little bit about the what I'm getting? Yes, of course. So, basically, you're getting a stamp that is 300 years old that has the Jerusalem cross, it has olive branches, three crowns, and a star. Okay. So, what's the significance of all of that? Of course, the Jerusalem cross, the middle cross, represents Jerusalem. And the four little ones represents the four gospels spreading around the world. And the, uh, the olive branch is basically for hope and life. This is what it represents. And then you've got the three crowns. Three crowns are for Holy Trinity. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the star, which is the star of Bethlehem. So this is the significance of all of that. Okay. We're only doing the cross, right? Okay. Yes. All right. Maybe next time I come back, I get the whole thing. You can continue. After some more chit chat, it's time. How does that feel? Not so bad. It's not bad. It hurt. Yeah, it hurts, but not as bad as I thought. You get it. I am lying here. I'm a big baby with a very low pain tolerance, but I'm putting on a brave face. Lucky for me, the entire process takes less than five minutes. It looks awesome. That's it. It looks amazing. Yep. Looks pretty good. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I am psyched about how the tattoo looks. If I'm honest, I never really thought I would get a tattoo. The thought of coming up with something very personal, very permanent, it just felt like too much pressure. But going to Razook's, I didn't really feel like I had to come up with some deeply meaningful story that was unique to me. By marking my body, I could participate in a tradition that goes back centuries. It feels deeply personal, but also like I'm part of a tradition. In other words, it felt really Catholic to me. Most of the stories are almost the same. Yeah. The reason they come here is, of course, being a pilgrim, getting the Jerusalem cross, and going back home with it. For them, it's their certificate of pilgrimage coming to Jerusalem. This is their proof. That's why I did so, it, yeah. That's most people, 99% of people coming okay. here, this is what they're coming for. This is their idea. I, I'm so happy with it. It looks great. <laughs> it does look good. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Of course. I my wife. I, I told. I checked with my wife. She said it's okay. Well, it's too late. I know. It's too late. <laughs> it's, too late. You can't do anything about it. it's, it's there. It's there. And she. But before I leave, it's time to settle up. Yeah. All right. I owe you for one tattoo and one beer. Zach, that sounds like a really profound experience, but I have to say, I, I'm just like shocked that you let a needle touch your skin. I'm like, a big baby. I've been trying to get you to give blood for years. <laughs> I know. it's I, I'm squeamish to say the least. No. So that must have been quite the experience. Have I convinced you? Are you... Are you interested? Oh, yeah. No, I, I have very similar feelings around tattoos. Like, unless something in my life 
happens that I'm like, oh, I need this on my skin. Like, I would never get a tattoo. And it seems like, you know, being a Catholic is a big enough thing to have happened to me where I'm like, okay, I'll, I can commit to this. All right. So next time, next time in Jerusalem, where yeah. I'll take you to Razuk. All right. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.